Um, good morning. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. Hey, didn't our worship team do a great job of leading us in worship this morning? That was awesome. Really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed that. I think uh, sometimes Christmas music can be very plastic, and then other times it can be very worshipful. That was worshipful. That was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, hey, just a couple of things as we get started this morning. We're going to open God's Word together and reflect on some stuff, but before we do that, I just wanted to acknowledge with you this morning uh, that many of us here are kind of coming together to make this new church campus a reality. And so what that means is that some of us are still figuring out, okay, what does it mean to be a part of this church family? And there's two things that I really wanted to highlight and point out to you this morning. One of those things is starting point. Starting point is an opportunity for you to come and to hear more of who we are as a church, our vision, our values, our history, where we've come from, where we believe the Lord's leading us. It's, it, we call it kind of a time where we pull back the curtain and, and show people, hey, this is who we are as a church and, and how you can be a part of that. And so it's a lunch that we do after the service and it's actually happening today. If you want to come along, we have childcare, we have lunch provided. It'll be from right after the service, about 11.15 through till about 12.30. So if you're available and want to come along to that, that would be a great next step. That's happening after the service today. We'd love to have you there to be a part of that. The other thing I want to mention, and it's a bit of a strange time to mention it, but I want to mention to you our life groups. One of uh, the things that I like to say is that our life groups are the lifeblood of this church because it's a place where you can, can connect with people beyond just a Sunday morning. Hey, how are you? Like you get to know people's names, their stories, where they're at in life. You get to pray with people and talk with people. And that may sound a little bit intimidating. It really isn't. You're in somebody's home. You're, you're getting to just share about life and listen and reflect on what God's saying to you and, and what he's saying through our services. And so... Life groups is a great thing for you to plug into as a step beyond just coming on a Sunday morning, which is awesome. We want you here on a Sunday morning, but we have three life groups that are currently up and running. We have one that meets after the service on Sunday, one that meets on Sunday night, and one that meets on Wednesday evening, okay? And so this is a weird time. I acknowledge this is a weird time to be telling you about life groups because all our life groups are kind of getting ready for their little Christmas break and all of this stuff going on. But you know what's just around the corner? the new year. And in the new year, maybe that would be the perfect window for you to jump in and say, you know what, we're going to prioritize being a part of this church family. And part of that means jumping into the community of this church. Okay. So I just wanted to like highlight those as two like avenues for you to connect deeper into this church family, because we'd love for that to happen. Cool. Awesome. All right. With that said, let's pray together. Let's just pause and say, God, we need your help today. I need God's help with my voice today. I don't know if you can hear. It sounds weird, and I'll explain a little bit more of that in a moment. Um, but let's pray together and just ask God to lead us through this time. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and that doesn't do anything super spiritual except helps us focus, right? So let's do that together. God, it is good for us to pause here in this moment and just acknowledge with you together our need for you today. God, we, like Elizabeth said, this is a busy time and we have so many things distracting us. And so we're asking you, even in these next few minutes, to take, to peel back those distractions and allow us to hear from you. Lord, we're here. Don't waste this time 
please speak to us. Speak to us through your word. Thank you that you've already been at work in our time of worship. Speak to us through, through even me today. Would you quicken my mind? Would you quicken my heart to say what I need to say today? May your Holy Spirit lead and guide this time. We thank you, God. Amen. What does an arrow do? It's not a trick question. What does an arrow do? It, it, it points to something, right? That's what it's, it's designed to do. Uh, usually, if not always, the something that the arrow is pointing to is more important than the arrow itself, right? Uh, let me give you an example. If we were traveling and uh, we came across a sign that said Niagara Falls and had an arrow on it, what is more important, the sign and the arrow or Niagara Falls itself? It's Niagara Falls, right? Like that is like a no-brainer question. People don't come to look at the sign. They come to look at the Ni Niagara Falls. And what God teaches us in his word is something similar to this. There's a reality. There's a connection here that I want for us to see. And that is that God has designed us, humans, to be arrows pointing to something greater than ourselves. That's what we're created for. And that something greater is He, He, God Himself. That's what we're designed for. There's a simple yet profound verse in the Bible that captures some of this. The fact that God has created us for this purpose of pointing towards Him. And I want to share it with you just as we get started. This isn't where we're going to be parked for today. But in Colossians chapter 1 in the Bible, verse 16, it says this. It's talking about God and His Son, Jesus. And it says, all things, all things, not some things, all things were created through Him and for Him. What that means is that we were created through God, by God and for Him, to point towards Him. And we see this in all of creation, right? We see the beauty of a sunset and it's an arrow pointing us towards God. It's something that should remind us there is a God. That didn't happen by chance. When we see a beautiful little toddler smiling and running around, there's something in the beauty of that that points us towards God. God created all things by His power and for Himself. We are created to worship God, to make much of God, to serve Him and to point to Him who is the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. But sometimes... Our lives are not like the straight arrows that they should be. And so instead of pointing towards God, we get bent out of shape. And when this happens, we make life, this happens when we make life about things less important than God. Instead of worshiping God and pointing towards God, we point to things that God has blessed us with, things in the created world. We make life about, and we say, life is all about, for me, comfort, or maybe pleasure, or maybe power, or relationships. Perhaps it's the next experience, or the next goal in our life. And so, we were created to point towards God, but when we start pointing to these lesser things, things don't work well. That's not how we were designed to operate. We were designed to point towards God, but when we point to these lesser things, that's going to actually result in harm or, or catastrophe. It's not a good thing. It's like trying to use a tool for something it wasn't designed to be used for. 
Imagine with me that I, I wanted to go and cut into, I needed to, for some reason, cut into the sidewalk in front of my house, the concrete sidewalk. And so resolutely, I went into my kitchen and found my best and most expensive, expensive kitchen knife and went back out to that sidewalk and started to just hack away at the concrete. What would happen? Not much, right? I'd, I'd get frustrated. I might hurt myself. I'd definitely hurt the knife because it wasn't designed for that. We are designed for worship. We're designed to point towards God. And when we try to live for other things, we do damage to ourselves. One author and pastor that I I really appreciate says this, you harm yourself when you love anything more than God. I would expand on that and say, when you love or live for anything more than God. We were made to worship God. And when we live for anything else, the results are not good. And so as we look into the Bible together today, what we're going to see is a man who is struggling with some of what we're talking about here. He's struggling to trust God. And what's interesting is this is a man who should have known better. He should, you'll see why he should have known better. He knows that he's called to live a life of worship, of trust, of surrender. And yet when we, when we look into his life, we, sh- we find him struggling to do that. And what's cool is throughout this story, we kind of get to see God straightening him back out through a whole series of things. And as we continue to watch, what we'll get to see is worship start to flow back out of this man. As he's straightened out to point towards God, we see worship overflowing from his heart and from his life. And so I'm excited for us to get to look at this together And what we're going to be looking at specifically is the book of Luke, chapter 1. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is the second song of Christmas. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. And so we're going to read this together. And as we read this together, what we're going to find is a man. still turning here. It's okay if you are too. Is a man named Zachariah. That's a strong Jewish sounding name, right? Zechariah. You know that that name means Yahweh remembers or God remembers. Zechariah is actually a name. Let's let's clarify something. Zechariah is the name of two important Bible characters. One is in the Old Testament. He was a prophet. That's not who we're talking about today, okay? We're talking about Zechariah in the New Testament who will discover a little bit more about him. He's actually the first character introduced in Luke's gospel. If you read the book of Luke, he's the first character that we really come across is this Zechariah guy. And uh, when I say Luke's gospel, let's, let's expand on that a little bit. Luke is one of the authors of the New Testament. In fact, interesting fact that I hadn't really thought about very much. Luke is probably, as, as scholars believe, the only non-Jewish author of the New Testament. Luke is one of the writers of the gospels. The gospels are the four accounts of Jesus' life. And so Luke wrote one of these accounts. He, he took information from people who actually were there and experienced these things, and he wrote it down all together. He has the story of how Jesus came to earth. And so what we're going to be looking at is, yes, the book of Luke. We're going to actually scan kind of some of the story, and then we're going to read together a song here in the book of Luke together. And so as we begin our scanning of this this. Uh, Story. What we find in verse 5 is the introduction of Zechariah. 
And Zechariah, we come to find out, is a priest. He is a religious leader there amongst the Jewish people. And he is married to a wonderfully named woman whose name is Elizabeth. My wife's name is Elizabeth. Um, And so he's married to Elizabeth. And what we discover about them is interesting. Look at verse 6 with me. It says this. And they, this is uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But... They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, if we just stop there for a moment and look at verse 7, what we see in verse 7 is the word but. And the reason that that is there is because it's saying, hey, these guys were righteous. These are good people. These are very moral, good people. And yet, what seems to be happening is in spite of the fact that these are good people, God has withheld blessing from these people. And so uh, one of the problems for us is that as we read this, we probably don't grasp the magnitude of what's going on here. Because having children is very important to us in our day and age and culture. But here, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, like having children was everything to you. It was your life investment and it was your future reality like and if you didn't have that man you were at at a loss basically this would have created we've got to understand this created much anxiety and shame for both Zachariah and Elizabeth and so not only does the bible tell us that they're without children it says what that they're advanced in years and so what this means is there is no child and there's no hope of having a child the ship has sailed It's done. And so we can very easily surmise that there are some personal struggles going on for Zechariah and Elizabeth. We can accurately, I think, deduct that. But we can also know that for them as a part of the Jewish people at that time, there's some struggle going on. You see, the Jews are under the rule and the oppressive rule of Rome. And so they don't have the freedom that they so desire to be the people that God has called them to be. Second to that, the Israelites are struggling because it would seem that God has been silent for 400 plus years. The last time that God's really kind of showed up has been through a prophet named Malachi over 400 years ago. And so we're, we're looking on tough times, not just for this couple, but for these people, the Jews in general. And so as we read on, what we discover is that Zechariah is going to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to perform his priestly duty. And so he is going up there. And as he goes up there, he's selected for a special task. This is to go into a special part of the temple to burn some incense. And this, by the way, would have been a big deal. There was enough priests that this did not happen often. This would have been a very big deal for Zechariah. And so he goes back to burn incense And all of a sudden, as he goes back there, there is an angel standing there where he's meant to be working. And he freaks out. Now, let's not judge him because I would probably do the same thing, right? Like you're, you're walking back to do your work and there's not meant to be anybody there. There's an angel standing there. He freaks out in this moment. Thankfully, the angel is kind and decides to, uh, to interact and engage with this very scared man. And so this angel, who we come to find out is called Gabriel, tells him four things. The four things are this. One, don't be afraid. Two, your prayers have been heard. Isn't that sweet? 
After all these years, I mean, we've got to imagine all these years. It's not just, hey, he's been praying once or twice for a kid. It's he's been told, hey, your prayers have been heard, always heard. I love that. Third thing he says, your prayers are actually about to be answered. You're going to have a son and, and you need to call this son John. And then fourth and finally, this son that you're going to have is no ordinary kid. He's actually going to be the one who precedes or goes in front of the Messiah. You know, the one that we're all waiting for to rescue God's people? That's who's coming. And your son's going to go in front of him. And so how does Zechariah respond? Well, if you look in verse 18 with me, you'll see. It says this in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Effectively, what Zechariah does he responds in disbelief. He's like, no, like this, this cannot be. And so Gabriel actually doesn't like this response, the angel. He rebukes him. And at the end of his rebuke, he says this. He says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that all these things take place because you did not believe the words which will be fulfilled in their time. So there's this rebuke. There's this word from the angel, Zechariah goes mute. He cannot talk. And, and the people are waiting outside, all the other priests are waiting, and the people that are there are waiting for Zechariah to come out, and they're like starting to freak out because he's taking a long time. Finally, he comes out, and when he does, they realize, hey, he's seen some sort of vision, and he cannot talk. Like, what's going on here? And so what continues on as we read the story is Zachariah finishes up his priestly duty there and then he heads home and lo and behold, they do fall pregnant. Miraculously, they fall pregnant after all this time. And so that's where the story all of a sudden switches. I love how Luke does this. It switches us across to looking at Mary and what we looked at last week where Mary is visited by an angel. And by the way, that story went much better. She had more faith and more trust in God in that moment. And so... Uh, the lens switches to Mary and then it brings in Elizabeth, who is related to Mary, back into the story. You can kind of read of their interaction. And then finally in verse 57 is where it brings us back to looking at uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth again. And what we discover is Elizabeth has the baby and there's this disagreement. Okay, what are we going to call this baby? Everybody's like, well, obviously Zechariah, that's the dad's name. Elizabeth says, no, 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 it needs to be John. And so this disagreement goes on and they kind of gesture over to Zechariah who still can't talk. And uh, he writes down, I guess on some parchment or something and, and says, his name is John. In that instant, a miracle happens and all of a sudden he can speak again. And what comes gushing out of his mouth, we get to actually read is worship and adoration for God. As his tongue is loosed, it's actually recorded what he said. So it's beautiful that we get to see this. And I'm going to read this with you. We're going to read the whole thing of what he says here in verse, uh, I'll read from verse 67 down through this song. This is Zechariah's prophecy and song. Listen to this. It says, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn. This is speaking about Jesus. 
of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father. Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high now he's talking about John the Baptist you will be called prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God whereby listen to this because we're going to come back to this the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is Jesus known as? One of the things he's known as is the Prince of Peace. Here is this beautiful, beautiful prophetic word and song. And what we've just witnessed here together as we've kind of done this scan and then this reading is both a story and a song. In fact, it's the story that produces the song, right? If we didn't have the story, there wouldn't be a song. But the song, what the song does is it captures emotions in a beautiful, beautiful way. And so we're going to look at the song together a little bit in more details. But before we do that, I want to spend some time examining the story as well. Zachariah, if we look into this story, is a man who knew God, right? He is a religious leader. In fact, as a priest working in the temple, the best modern day equivalent that we can find is a pastor working on staff at a church. I mean, that's kind of who this guy is. And so he knows about God, but while, uh, while the story reveals to us, what it reveals to us is the fact that even though he, he knows God, he doesn't really trust him, at least at first in the story. And so I think, I'm not trying to make excuses for, for Zachariah here, but I think there's good reason for that. Zachariah and his wife would have cried out for many years with many tears to have a baby. And what has seemed to be their reality is that God hasn't listened. In spite of their earnestness, in spite of the intensity of their prayers, God has not answered. And then all of a sudden, this messenger just shows up. And I say all of a sudden, they've prayed for years, but God's been silent or seemingly, he hasn't really been silent, but seemingly silent for 400 plus years. And all of a sudden he shows up and tells them through this, this angel that a miracle's coming and Zachariah's response, I don't blame him for it, is no, not possible. I just don't see that happening. And so what we need to remember as we think about this is that Zachariah, like all of us, was designed to glorify God, to be someone pointing towards God. But he's falling short of that calling in this moment. His struggles with unanswered prayer have pulled him away from being the straight arrow pointing towards God that he should be. And so he's struggling to trust God because what has happened in his life is he's seen that his problems seem bigger than his God. And that's where I think that's the reason for his rejection of God. 
And that's where I think for, for me, I want to kind of pause a little today and say, hey, is maybe that some of your experience? In a room like this, I've got to assume that some of us have problems that seem bigger than our God. And that's the reality. And what God has to do is to expand Zachariah's view and thinking again so that he can see, hey, God is actually bigger than these things that I'm struggling with. God in his kindness doesn't just reject Zachariah with his poor response, right? That's nice that God did that. I mean, God could have been like, hey, Gabriel, go find another guy. This guy doesn't have much faith. But he doesn't do that. Graciously, God sticks to his plan. And he doesn't just stick to his plan and say, well, I'm going to show him. I'm going to do this miracle anyway. He also commits to seeing change in Zechariah. Like a father who is committed to disciplining their child in love so that they can grow, God is committed to changing Zechariah's heart, to straighten again this bent arrow so that he can worship God rightly. And the way that God does this is in a somewhat strange way. I think we'd all agree that. How does he do this? He takes away Zachariah's voice. Now, this is where this sermon just gets kind of weird. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. In that in most weeks when I preach, I don't personally experience the things that we're studying in God's word myself. In that, you know, I don't experience plagues like <laughs> the people of Egypt did, thankfully. Or, you know, lion's dens, uh, you know, uh, having rocks thrown at me. There's all these crazy stories in the Bible, right? But this week, I had the almost completely surreal experience of losing my voice. I, I've actually got goosebumps telling you this because, like, this doesn't normally happen. I, in my lifetime, I have never completely lost my voice until this week. Sunday night... We had our youth Christmas party and it was just going, gradually going. And then all of a sudden it just left. Like I could not get a single word out of my mouth. And then for the next day, Rob heard me try to talk on Monday. It was gone, like completely gone. It wasn't until Tuesday morning my voice started to gradually come back. So for a day and a half I had no voice and I hated it. I mean, I, I'm like, God, what are you trying to show me here? I'm meant to be preaching about Zechariah and I've lost my voice. I think what God was doing, or at least one of the things that he was doing, was reminding me of the, he awakened me to the intensity of what Zechariah experienced. We often like, we're like, oh yeah, he lost his voice probably for like nine months. Yeah, that was, you know, like, that was a big deal. I mean, this is not fun I mean, I found, I lost my voice for a day and a half. It was humbling. It was frustrating. I saw that a lot of my identity and productivity was all tied to my ability to speak. This guy lost his voice for nine plus months. And so what God re awakened me to the reality was the intensity of this struggle. I mean, I, I dealt with this in the midst of, you know, still being able to text message or write something down like this. This guy lived in our non-modern age. And so what I've been reminded of, I'm actually going to take a drink right now. What I've been reminded of is the fact that, and this is for me personally, but I also see this in the story, is that God is more interested, listen to this, in his glory than in our comfort. God is more interested in his glory than in, our, than in our comfort. And so what God has to sometimes do 
is the uncomfortable work of bending us back to be people of right worship. And he'll do that by whatever means he needs to. He will, yes, take a voice. He will do a, a whole bunch of different things as a good and gracious father reforming us into people who give right worship. And so what we see is that this discomfort that God gives to Zechariah actually does work. There's actually a huge change that takes place. We witness it in the text. What are the very last words out of Zechariah's mouth before he loses his voice? They're unbelief. What are the very first words out of Zechariah's mouth? Their belief, their praise, their adoration. It's awesome, awesome worship. God has done a successful work. He has moved a man from knowing about him to truly knowing him and trusting him. He has become an arrow pointing again faithfully towards God. And what bursts forth in this moment as he's lifted up in praise and worship and adoration to God is this beautiful song. And so let's look at this song for a moment. Let's make some observations about this song, knowing that what it shows us is right worship, what worship should sound like in our lives. And what it also shows us is Jesus. We're going to see Jesus in this song. I'm not going to get too bogged down here. There's a lot in this song. But I want to make four observations with you as we look at this song. The first observation that I want to look at with you is this. In church tradition, this song has been called the Benedictus because it's a very important song. It's that word Benedictus, like the Mary's song, which is the Magnificat, has been given this Latin name, and that Latin name means blessed. It's the very first word of the song. If you look at the song and how it starts, in verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Do you guys hear what we're hearing there? That is a look up. I'm an arrow, like pointing to something greater than myself. I'm worshiping King Jesus. I'm, I'm worshiping God. This is an arrow pointing us towards right worship. The second observation is this. Zechariah would have been very, very, very excited about having a son. This is something he has yearned for, for probably not just years, but decades. And so he finally has a son, and yet his focus of his song is not on his son. It is on God. If you look at the song, what you'll find is from verse 68 to 75, he doesn't even mention his son. It's all God. It's all man. God is awesome. Look at God. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's doing. And then verse 76, when he finally does mention his son, he focuses on how God is going to use his son. In fact, how his son is going to be an arrow pointing towards the reality of God. And so God has become the main focus of Zechariah's life. He is at the very heart of all that excuse me, Zechariah cares about. Okay, third observation. This is where we could get really bogged down. There are tons of Old Testament references in and through this song. There's ideas and concepts and verses. Like you could go on a deep dive here looking at all of the little cross references. And I think part of that is because Zechariah is a priest. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. He's probably got it all memorized. 
And as the Holy Spirit is awakening him and he's seeing the reality of who his son is and who this Messiah is, it's all starting to click and come together. And he's like, whoa, look at this and look at this and look at how all this comes together. And so we could geek out and spend a lot of time looking into all of these these references and cross-references, but I just want to look at one with you in particular. I told you earlier that God has seemingly been silent for 400 years. The last book of the Bible, of the Old Testament of the Bible, is a book called Malachi. And the prophet Malachi, in the last chapter of what he wrote, he wrote these words. Listen to this. This is in verse 2 of Malachi 4. It says, But you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. That is a prophetic word talking about the arrival of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins that we would experience, the healing of humanity. This is a prophetic word right before God goes seemingly silent. And now here, 400 years later, as God all of a sudden seems to awaken again and start speaking to his people, look how that concept is picked up again in Luke chapter 1, verse 78. What it says there, it says, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the what? sunrise shall visit us from on high. He is picking up on this biblical concept that a Messiah is coming and it's like sunshine, warmth, hope, happiness coming to earth again. What this reminds us of is the fact that God remembers. He remembers his promise. He remembers his people. And do you remember what Zachariah's name means? God remembers that very truth. It's incredible to see all of these cross connections. The fourth observation is this. This song is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Just a couple of examples. Uh, Verse 68, when it talks about, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. Apparently that word is very hard to translate into English from the original language because what it means is it means much more than visit. It means to come and to look over and to care for to, to oversee, to, to come and say, hey, I'm here and I'm caring for you. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to be amongst us, to care for us, to heal us, to make us right. In fact, if you go on to verse 71, it talks about this concept of saving us from our enemies. What are the enemies of humanity? Sin and death. Jesus came to defeat those things. That's why he died on that cross, for our sins so that we could be made right with him. And this isn't something that we deserve. In fact, in verse 72, it talks about God sending uh, his son and this to show mercy promised to our fathers. This is not something we deserve, guys. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve forgiveness of our sins. And yet in Jesus, we have that. And so very quickly, we can see that this song is all about Jesus. Jesus has made Zachariah's heart truly, truly sing. So as we think about this story and we think about this song, I want for us to just pull back a little bit and say, okay, this song of right worship has erupted from this man. How did that come about? How did we see that come about? And I think there's three main elements that brought that into being. 
The first is this, Zachariah sees, he witnesses with his eyes the goodness of God. He sees God give him a son, the birth of his sons. So there's this witnessing, this seeing of God's goodness. The second thing is that Zachariah experiences God's healing. His voice, unlike mine, which gradually went away and gradually is coming back, his was gone in an instant and came back miraculously because God miraculously heals him. And so he experiences this repair and this healing by God. Thirdly, God is, sorry, Zechariah is filled and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Did you pick that up in verse 67? It tells us there that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that led to this song. And so as you think about Zechariah, what I want you to see with me today is that Zechariah's experience actually isn't very detached from what can be our reality too. You see, Zechariah sees God's goodness, he experiences God's healing, and he is filled with and inspired by the Holy Spirit. We, as humans, can experience all of those things too. Let me explain and expand on that a little bit. I think this is really cool. When we see God's goodness, a song will start to burst forth as we see God's goodness in Jesus who was sent to us. That's what Christmas is all about, right? We look and we say, look, he came. This is God's goodness. It's not about presence, guys. Sorry to hate to tell you that. It is about Jesus coming. The second thing that we can kind of correlate here is that when we experience healing, we experience healing in our hearts when Jesus forgives us of our sins. And again, this leads to a song starting to burst forth from our hearts. As we see God's goodness, as we experience the healing of our hearts, as we're made right with God, we're reconciled. That's the word the Bible uses for the forgiveness of our sins. Made right with God. And then thirdly, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us as we believe in Jesus and experience this forgiveness of our sins. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we surrender to Him and say, God, every fiber of my being is yours. As we do that, songs of praise, lives that look like songs of praise are going to flow naturally from us. We will see and experience worship. It will erupt from our hearts and from our lives. And so the question burning in my mind to ask all of us today is what is stopping that from happening in your life or perhaps even in my life today? What is blocking right worship? What is stopping you from being the arrow pointing to God that you were designed and created to be? I want for us to all reflect on that. How do we need God to straighten us back to being people of right worship today? Maybe for some of you, it's struggles that you're going through at the moment. Maybe it's unanswered prayer, which we've seen in this story, like we've seen in this story today. Maybe it's just distraction of things of this earth. Maybe you're living for your next paycheck more than you're living for God. Maybe it's a dependency on the approval of people around you. I I don't know what it is, but I want all of us to consider that today. We were designed to be arrows pointing to King Jesus. What is stopping us from doing that? What is stopping us from worship? Because if there is anything stopping us from that, 
we can come to him today. We can ask for him to be the kind, merciful, and good God that we know that he is, to straighten us back into right worship. And so as you come to him, as you experience his perfect love, joy, hope, and peace, may you and may I become straight arrows pointing the rest of the world to that same love, joy, hope, and peace. In him, we have a beautiful and precious God who is worthy of every ounce of worship, who is worthy of every cell and fiber in our being being pointed towards him. And so I'm just asking all of us to surrender today completely to him, to worship him with our lives, with our words, with our actions, with every waking moment. Whether you are maybe on the edges of faith saying, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, or whether you're somebody like a Zachariah who has been around the block and knows church, knows faith, knows even God. What is God saying to you today? Will you be one who in this Christmas season gives right worship to King Jesus? Let me pray for us.